Now, today is Acts Season 1 finale, okay? So after today, there is no Acts until August, okay? And, and this actually is a very nice midway point for the book of Acts. And so we are in chapter 12. I'm just going to show you 11 for a little bit of context and then we'll go full steam ahead. There's a lot to say um, about this. You know, season finales are always longer one. Right? Season finale is always more cheeky one, right? Season finale always is like it's like the writers, you know, couldn't pace the thing properly. So there's so many loose ends, so they're cramming everything into into you know uh, the, the last episode. That's a little bit like today, okay? Um, Acts 11 to finish off from where Athalia uh, took the pulpit last week to share about Cornelius and Peter and the gospel now going not just to the Gentiles, but it is God not just to individual Gentiles, but it's gone to an entire family, okay? Uh, Peter has decisively broken and violated the, the, or the old Jewish customs, which is don't fraternize with non-Jews, right? And he's, he's broken that, right? It's a huge taboo to the Jewish crowd, but God has instructed for this because God said, don't call unclean that which I have made clean, right? And so, um, uh, the, the boundary lines, in a way, have been crossed and they are uncrossable again, right? You can't uncross it from here on. Acts 11 continues with Peter uh, making a case before all the naysayers and then, and then, a mission goes out to Antioch. Now, I'm showing you this here. This is just so you can fact-check me, okay? Okay, I'm not going to read everything because this is just for context. The mission goes out, okay? The Christians start moving out, going all the way to Antioch. Now, Antioch is quite a lot further up north. Today, Antioch is in Turkey. It's a city called Antakya, right? And when they go up north, Jerusalem sends Barnabas, Right, Barnabas is a new figure. You have not heard of Barnabas before this, but you will hear quite a lot of Barnabas in season two when it starts in August. Okay, they send a young guy called Barnabas up to Antioch because there are more and more Christians in Antioch. Incidentally, it is Antioch where the believers are first called Christians. Before that, they were called followers of the way. Right, before that, they were called followers of Jesus, or whatever you want to call it. But, and by the way, the word Christian, as it was originally used on us, was a derogatory term. It was a slur. To, to be called a Christian was a cultural slur, like you're Christian, like pendatang, that kind of, that, that level of slur, right? And so it happened in Antioch, that all of us were called Christians there. Now, while Barnabas was going up to Jerusalem, he took a detour. And he goes to Tarsus, and in Tarsus, he meets a new convert. A new convert who was not too long ago blinded while on his way to Damascus. This is Saul of Tarsus. He goes to Tarsus to meet Saul. And then he gets Saul, and he says, Saul, you've been hanging around here after your conversion, okay, sitting under God's word for too long. I've got a mission for you. And so Barnabas gets Saul. Together, they start raising aid for the church in Jerusalem because there is a prophecy, there's going to be famine in Jerusalem. They start raising aid and then they start working towards sending the aid to Jerusalem. Now, at this time, if you can see uh, the text here, it says about that time. So it's roughly, lebih kurang, simultaneous. What happens? Herod kills James. 
Now, which James is this? There are several Jameses, okay? So there is, uh, uh, in fact, <laughs> don't, don't be confused because later, there's, after James dies, there's another James. It's like, wow, resurrection of the king. No, um, Herod kills James. This James is James, the son of Zebedee. John and James, the sons of Zebedee, you remember when Jesus went to the edge of the waters and he said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. There was Peter and Andrew and James and John, right? It's this James. The James of the Gospels, right? Is this James. Died. He died here, okay? Um, by the sword, apparently, right? It says here, by the sword. Likely Panchong lah, right? Okay? Um, and then, when Herod saw that the execution of James pleased the crowd, like, wow, this is scoring some serious political mileage, right? With these people, like, this is great, right? Everyone loves it. I'm going to get re-elected, right? So, okay, he wasn't re-elected. There's no election. Um, after he saw that that happened, he repeated the, the gimmick with Peter. So he had Peter arrested as well. And he had Peter in on death row as well. Now the thing is, you can't kill people during Passover. That's just a, their Jewish custom. You just can't kill people during Passover. And it was Passover. So they kept Peter in prison. All right? And then it was waiting for the time when it became not taboo anymore to take Peter out and to have him killed. And that's where we land, okay? Now, I just want to say a few things about James dying. You all remember when Stephen was martyred? How many of you remember? You were here when we covered Stephen's martyrdom, right? Raise your hand, right? Okay, you all remember that when Stephen was martyred, it was a very long passage, and Stephen gave a very long sermon, right? And one by one by one, he started to show that y'all are the bad guys, right? Okay, remember that? Now, James's death is in a way like Peter's, like, like Stephen's death because he is being martyred, right? Okay, to be martyred is to be killed for your faith. Now, but it's in many other ways totally not told like Stephen's martyrdom at all. It is told almost as a passing remark, right? In fact, to be specific, it's told like this, right? Um, and he laid violent hands on the church and he killed James, the brother of John. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. That's it. James gets half a sentence. His death is half a sentence long. Now, I want to ask you, why is it written that, that way? Okay, I'm going to leave that with you. You think about why was it written that way, where one guy gets such a glorious story and another guy gets half a sentence. But I actually also want to ask you this. You know that later Peter is going to get Broken out, broken free from jail, right? He's going to cheat death. James doesn't cheat death. People were praying for Peter. Do you not think people would have been praying for James? The church was interceding for Peter. We see that it's recorded. We know that James' Winner's story hardly recorded. But do you not think the same church would have been interceding for James? Or as I heard one theologian say, if I was James's mother, I might not be too happy with the way Acts 12 goes because, you know, her son <laughs> dies and another guy, also in prison, also caught by Herod, also entirely exactly the same thing, that guy lives. God, why like that? Right? Why is it that some people live and then other people don't live? It seems very random. It seems that our God can be very arbitrary. Sukahati, one guy mati. Sukahati, another guy. Wow. Gonna draw the lucky stick and then he can, he can be set free. Is our God like that? We just sang the song, right? Um, that that, that God, is, uh, God is faithful. Right? Lionel was just leading us into the faithfulness of God. 
is a faithful God, alang alang, one person live, one person die? And if he is not, then how do we make sense of something like this? Because guess what? This is alive today. This is real today. In your lifetime, you will pray for people and some God will call home and others, they will, they will experience healing. And I have people whom I totally don't know coming up to me and saying, thanks pastor uh, for sharing the word because of that, my so-and-so-and-so whom I lagi don't know came to know Christ. And meanwhile, I have so many loved ones who are still so far from Jesus. How do we make sense of this? The reality is, God is sovereign. If anything, this reminds us that God is sovereign. And in under the hand of a sovereign God, He knows who has run their race and who has not yet run their race. We know that Peter has not yet run his race to the end. We know that. Why? Because Jesus actually told Peter that when you are old, someone else will address you and take you where you do not want to go, right? In John 21. And so he's not run his race. Peter is not going to die, right? Jesus also said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So something's going to happen. Peter has a different story. He has a different destiny. And James has his own story. And James' story is, he gets caught home here. It's very funny. I heard this same theologian, N.T. Wright, um, uh, is his name, right? He was talking about how, you know, it wasn't N.T. Wright, it was someone else. It was Skip Heidzig who said that uh, James beat Peter uh, to, the, to, 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 to heaven, right? He beat Peter to heaven. It's very funny because um, if you read the ending of John, uh, James and, and, and Peter, Peter and, and John, his brother, James' brother, were also running to the tomb, okay? And, uh, and uh, John also uh, beat Peter uh, to, the, to the tomb. So Peter got beaten twice, right? Peter got beaten to the tomb and Peter got beaten to death as well, right? Beaten to death. <laughs> okay, a bit of context, right? Let's keep on reading. So now we are in Acts 12. This is the prison break, okay? This is the most elaborate prison break you're going to read here. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. Suddenly, boom, there's an angel next to him, right? And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. Verse 7, verse 8. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. Now, there's quite a bit of, uh, there's quite a bit of dressing instructions going on here. Uh, just pay attention, okay? Dress yourself, one, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you, and then follow me, right? And this, this is, a, strangely enough, almost like a weird reprise of being called into, uh, into ministry, right? right? Leave your nets, leave your father, you know, um, come with me and be fishers of men, right? Come follow me, right? And here is different. Dress yourself, put on your sandals, wrap your cloak, then follow me. And he went out and followed him, him being the angel. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. 
So at this point, it's not yet clear. It's ambiguous to Peter um, what really was happening. In fact, he assumed that it was a spiritual vision or like a dream. Verse 10, when they had passed the first guard and then the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city and it opened for them of its own accord. So it's not even with remote control, right? It's not an auto gate, okay? It opened by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So in case you're thinking, why so obvious? Isn't it obvious? It's because he thought it was a dream. Okay? He thought that what he was experiencing was just a vision, but now he realizes that, oh, now I'm sure that this was real. I see now that it's real. And I see that this was to rescue me from Herod and all the Jews want to do. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So this is not James's brother John, okay? This is not Jesus' family, Mary. There are many Jameses, many Johns, many Marys, okay? Um, so this is John Mark. And John Mark is likely to be the same author of the Gospel of Mark. He is an evangelist, or later he will be an evangelist. You'll hear more of him in season two. Now, he goes to John Mark's house, right? Mary's house, where many were gathered together and were praying. So as it, turned, as it, as it seems, John Mark's house has become a bit of a hub, a bit of a home church where the believers were gathering. It's widely believed that um, uh, the events in the chapter just before Pentecost were happening in John Mark's house as well, right? And then, and when he knocked at the door, I love this part, guys. I love this part. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. I love Rhoda. She's so funny. Funny, funny girl, okay? Recognizing Peter's voice in her, in her joy, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So imagine she goes to the window or she goes to the side of the door, she hears Peter's voice, okay? And Peter is like, pop, 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 let me in, let me in, right? And she's like, ah! And she goes back and says, like, it's Peter, it's Peter. And meanwhile, Peter is like, pop, 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 guys, come on, let me in, let me in, right? Let me in. And Peter's just like, ah! You know, um, and I love she, she, I love her because she's so real. She's like one of us, right? She's not like some rock star Christian. She's just she's just silly and funny, right? Verse fifteen. Now, when when Rhoda is so excited and she's like, oh, "It's Peter! It's Peter!" Right? They say they say to her, "You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind." Wait, wait. Peter, right? But she kept insisting that it was so, no, it's Peter. He's outside. It's Peter, right? And they kept saying, no, it's his angel. Now, I just want to pause here, right? When you see it's his angel, uh, we are accustomed today to thinking, okay, maybe they think that it's his guardian angel. Like, there's an angel who is with him, okay? Now, maybe, okay, but you have to understand that the way the ancient Jews kind of like wrap their heads around afterlife is that for those who, are, who belong to God, they aren't dead, dead, right? They're alive in some way. And by being alive in some way, um, they have to be alive in either the soul lives on or the spirit lives on or somehow uh, some part of them is alive with God. And so the understanding is that they may either be alive in the form of a spirit or in the form of 
an angel, okay? And so I think many of us have heard stories also of people who have recently passed away and then, and then family members, loved ones, just catch a sighting of them, uh, um, maybe at the funeral or something like that, you know, or in the, in the days ahead, and then suddenly they vanish, right? Or they may show up, say something, and then go, right? Now, there's no explanation for it, um, and I'm not going to theologize what that really is. I've heard some people say that, oh, that's an evil spirit coming to mess with you. Now, I don't know. The point is, the Jews also had that kind of thinking, okay? And in that kind of thinking, they said, no lah, must be his angel. Likely, they believe that Peter has just been executed. Likely, they believe that in his execution, his spirit has come to make a short visitation before he vanishes forever, right? And so they said, it must be his angel. But Peter continued knocking. I don't know if angels can like persistently knock, you know. I don't know how corporeal they are. Their hands go through the door. I don't know, okay. Uh, spirit, I don't know, right. But Peter continued knocking. He's probably going like, Rhoda, come on, open the door now, right. Um, until they went and opened and they saw him and they were amazed. They were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Different James, okay? This is James, the brother of Jesus, okay? Half-brother of Jesus, Mary's blood children, Mary and Joseph's normal children. So Jesus was, was immaculately conceived, first son in the family. The younger brothers were all normal children, Mary and Joseph, right? So that's James. Tell these things to James and to the brothers, to the rest of the believers, right? Then he departed and very curiously, very vaguely, Luke writes, and he went to another place. <laughs> it's like, it's almost like you have your, everybody has that friend who likes to keep things vague, like, oh, um, where are you going? Somewhere. La. It's like, dude, just, just tell me la, where you're going. No, don't say la, you know? Yeah. So Peter went to another place, okay? We'll get to that later, right? Um, meanwhile, the next morning, there is commotion, right? There is commotion in the prison. Probably, have a, probably a lot of shouting, probably a lot of panic because prisoner uh, on the loose, right? And because prisoners on the loose, it's life for life with the guards, okay? So Herod uh, uh, um, commands for the guards to be executed, okay? And after they are executed, the Herod goes to Caesarea, okay? So it's, a, it's a coastal city up on the west. Now, for a moment, I just want to acknowledge this. You may be looking at this and thinking, why not Pharaoh? You know, God rescued Peter, and because God rescued Peter, all these innocent guards have to die, okay? Okay? Do you all think like that? How many of you had that thought? That thought passed through your head? Only four of you. Oh my God, five, six. Okay, okay, okay. Some of you, right? I had that thought. I was like, no fair, man. Okay, no. So I want to help you to navigate this, right? Because God is just, okay? And God does not do unjust things, okay? And so how do you navigate something like this? I'd like to help you a little bit, okay? God knows which, which guards He's going to appoint to be there that night. Okay? I think we all agree that, okay? God knows which guards. Okay, God knows the journey of those guards. Okay? If God wants to appoint for a guard there to die that night, He can and He will. If God has assigned a guard there to die because the guard deserves to die, He can and He will. If God has assigned a guard there because He says, your time is up, I'm calling you home to me, 
because we know from Cornelius that there are righteous, there are righteous, uh, 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 um, not uh, Gentiles out there. If he has appointed that, and he says, "I'm going to have an encounter with you," and it's a different story, it's your story. You know, he can, he can, and he will. God will be just, and it's not in our place because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God can do this. All we need to know is, it's not a case of he do one thing and then suddenly something else happens. And he goes like, oh. Oops, right? That's not how it is with God. Now, several months pass after Herod goes to Caesarea Philippi. Okay? We know that several months passed because the Passover was when Peter was supposed to be killed. Slightly AD 43 because, because external historical records tell us when King Agrippa dies. You're going to see King Agrippa die. I'm giving away all the deaths, okay? Um, King Agrippa dies later, okay? And we know that happens on AD 44. It happens before that year's Passover, okay? So likely the nearest Passover before that is AD 43. This also means that we are about 10 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So all the stories of Acts that you've heard until now, it's not just one or two weeks. It's not just three or four months. It's about 10 years worth of story already. Okay? And so, several months pass, and then Herod, still in Caesarea Philippi, entertains some guests from two of these cities, Tyre and Sidon. That's not important. The important thing is, Herod, in a show of his splendor, okay, rocks up in a fantastic royal robes. Now, Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, totally records this, like total corroboration, okay? Describes Herod showing up before Tyre and Sidon's uh, 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 people as coming in a robe in silver. So it's so shiny because it's reflective, okay? That when he stands there and it catches the sun, okay? Herod is just glowing. He's just reflecting sunlight, okay? He's, he clearly wants to make a splash, okay? He's, 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 he's having a... He, he's showing... His, it's, it's, a, it's a power move, right? Because... Now, i tell you why. In those days, it was not uncommon to associate kings with, with deity, with, with the divine, okay? And so, even though Herod is... Uh, okay, guys, I accidentally touched something here and it went off, okay? So, I'm just going to need someone to help me with, with this. All right. Um, so, while they are... It's the iPad, yeah. Okay, so while he's so so it's not unusual for a king to try to style himself as a bit of a a, a demigod, okay? And so he's got all that shining light on him, okay? And then he starts to give an oration, he starts to speak, and while he speaks, okay, the the, the crowd from Tyre and Sidon, okay, they want to curry his favour, right? And so they start crying out, and because he's shining, okay, they cry out. The voice of a God and not of a man. They're flattering him, lah, okay? They're flattering him. And as they flatter him like that, okay, he receives it, right? He styles himself as a pagan God of sorts, right? He receives it. And on the spot, on the spot, this happens. Let's take a look, right? The voice of a God and not a man, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. It's pretty gory, okay? Yeah. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
And there are shades of, of, of the creation story in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. The word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service. Remember I told them, told you, right? Bringing with them John Mark, right? Back up to Antioch. I want to share with you three things. A little longer on the passage, I'm going to try to go a little shorter in my three points. But three things I want to show you. There is open wall, there is open door, and there is open the door. Okay? There is open wall, there is open door, and there is open the door. Open wall between the kings of the Jews. Open door for the gospel now to go out to the furthest ends of the earth. And Rhoda open the door, right? Because behind the door, there are people fervently praying. We're going to look at their faith. But first, open wall. At this stage, in fact, long before this stage, there has already been open wall between Herod and Jesus. Herod, king of the Jews, and Jesus, king of the Jews. There are two claims to the king of the Jews. Except that, if you remember what Jesus said to Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world, I would have my people come and stop this whole thing, right? No, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Jesus was laying claim to being king of the Jews in a very different way from how Herod laid claim to being king. In fact, when you see the name Herod, it's a bit like seeing the word Caesar. Because there is not one Herod. Herods die and then they somehow keep regenerating. They are like zombies, right? The Herods just don't die. Night of the living Herod, right? And so, I want to show you a bit of a family tree of the Herod. These are all the Herods, okay? Actually, no, this is not yet all the Herods, but these are some of the Herods. It all traces back to Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod who was there at the birth of Jesus. He was insecure. He was the one who tried to go to the manger to find Jesus. He was tricked. He ended up killing all the baby boys. That's Herod the Great. He is the grand grandfather of all of the Herods. And he's also the guy who, who enlarged the second temple. Right? He, 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 remember the court of Gentiles that Athelia showed you? That, 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 that Gambaraja, right? He's the one who built that court of Gentiles. That's Herod the Great. Now, um, he had all these sons, he has more sons. I'm showing you the relevant ones, right? Antipater, okay? Um, later, he has a grandnephew, uh, a nephew who is Antipeter, okay? But this is not that guy, okay? This is Antipater. There is Aristobulus, okay? Then there's Her Herod Philip I. Now, Herod Archelaus, remember when Herod the Great died and then they were coming back from Egypt? Mary, Joseph with baby Jesus and they said that, oh, Herod has died, we can come back. But then they saw that another Herod was reigning in the area of Bethlehem so they moved instead to Nazareth, right? Oh, so they moved instead yeah, to Nazareth to avoid that was Herod Archelaus, okay? And then most of the gospel stories of Herod is Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. This is the Herod who was involved in the trial of Jesus. This is the same Herod whom Jesus said, you go tell that fox, right? Is this Herod, Antipas, right? And there's another Herod called Herod Philip II, Philip I, Philip II. This is the guy who founded the city of Caesarea Philippi. Philip II founded Caesarea Philippi. Now remember the story here of John the Baptist beheading? There was this weird scandal about a second wife and all this kind of thing. How many of y'all know that story? Okay, it actually looks like this. Aristobulus has a son called Agrippa I, okay? And 
and he in turn has a son called Herod Agrippa II. Now, this is what happens. Agrippa I has a sister called Herodias, okay? Even the women are called Herod, right? She has a sister called Herod, okay, who was wife of Herod Philip I. And then what happens is, she leaves Philip I to hook up with his brother, Antipas. And John the Baptist opposed this union and because John the Baptist opposed this union, right, okay, Salome is Herodias' daughter, the one who danced so beautifully until Antipas was like, oh, anything up to half of my kingdom, I want John the Baptist's head, right? That, it, there was this little story here, okay? This strange, strange ancestral kind of scandal, okay? Now, it was Herod Agrippa I who imprisoned Peter. So it's following Aristobulus' family line, right? It's Herod Agrippa I imprisons Peter, kills James, and later in the story, Agrippa II and his son will be involved in the trial of Peter. This is just a summary of all the Herods. Now, why do I show you their family tree? This is not yet their genogram, right? If you genogram these guys, it will be a mess, a whole mess, right? But... Okay, we've lost the tally. No worries. Okay, um, why do I show you this? I show you this so you know that this family, the entire family, you could almost say, has been at war with God. The entire family have been styling themselves as king of the Jews in opposition to Jesus, in opposition to God who is the Jewish people's king. And then you're going to see soon not just king of the Jews, but king and lord over the whole world as well. And Herod has been, Herod, I use it as a group name, Herod as a group has been fighting God non-stop. There has been this battle to be the king non-stop. And there will always be, there will always be a Herod in this world. There will always be an earthly power who tries to use force and intimidation and, and violence and, and all kinds of earthly trickery and stealth and, and brutality in order to gain control. Who is the king of the Jews? We know it's Jesus. We know that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this earth. And because we are subjects of Jesus, he is our king, he is our Lord. We give Jesus our allegiance. Because we do that, we come under his ways. And His ways are not our ways. His ways are not Herod's ways. And you're going to see this go on and on. I'm going to pause there. There's open wall. And then now, you're going to see an open door. You're going to see an open door. Because when Peter was in prison, sleeping, sleeping quite soundly as well, yeah, um, the angel showed up, okay, woke him up, struck him, yeah, struck him on the side and then led him into the city. It's interesting, this point of being struck by the angel. Okay? Peter was struck by the angel to be woken up, to be saved. Later in the story, you see Herod being struck by the angel and he dies. Both get struck. One gets struck to life. One gets struck to death. And so as Peter wakes up, and then he's got to do all his dressing up, right? <laughs> okay, quite, quite a lot of detail in dressing up there. He walks out 
and they come to the iron gate leading into the city. I want, to, I want you to know that when you see this picture, it's a loaded picture. Extremely layered, extremely powerful picture. Because the angel is leading Peter. Peter is a normal human being. He is he's existing in this weird space between dream and reality. It's actually real, but he's interfacing with something of heaven. And this is exactly the kind of play, moment where we pray. Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. So you're seeing heaven invading earth. You're seeing angels leading normal humans into a place, out of a place, to see gates, earthly gates. But also, because you're in the weird space between the, the heavens and the earth, I want you to see that what's happening here is that the gates into the city open. Who opens the gates? God opens the gates. God opens the gates so that the man can go into the city. The man can bring the gospel out of prisons, out of chains, into the city. Gates open. Doors open. Now I want you to see the metaphor behind this, the spiritual significance of this. God is in a season here in Acts 12 and moving forward where He's going to bring His disciples into cities. And as He brings disciples into the cities, access point into the city, not just physical access points. You can physically access cities. It's not hard. You show up in the day, city, door, city gates open early in the morning, you know, trade happens, people go in and out, you access the city. He's not talking about this kind of access. He's talking about spiritual authority. Who opens the gates of spiritual authority as you enter a new terrain, as you enter a new frontier, as you enter into a new life of someone, as you're praying for your loved ones, as you're praying for your workplace, as you're praying over a piece of work that you are embroiled in? Who opens the gates of spiritual authority so that you can enter? It is God who enters. Doors open. And when he opens, it's important that these gates lead into the city. It's not just any gate. It's not just gates that lead him out of the prison. It's gates that lead him into a place with population. It leads him into a place with people who need to be saved. It leads him into a place where there are existing security measures, whether it's physical or for that matter spiritual, but God gives access. And when God gives access, Peter is going to go in. And something is going to happen when Peter goes in. Same for every single one of us. Doors are opening. And they went out. And they went along the street and immediately the angel leaves him. Okay? Now, let's just stay on Peter for a bit. Because Peter, as I, as I alluded to you earlier, okay, has, is not going to die. He was never going to die. God was not yet done with him. How conscious Peter was, I'm not sure. Okay? How assured he was, I'm not sure. The text is kind of silent on it. We just know that he was sleeping. But one thing I want to show you, gates being open is because God has spoken over Peter this promise before. You are Petros. You are Peter. And on this Petra, on this rock, I will build my church and the what? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, upon the confession of Peter here in this story, I think it's Matthew 14, or Matthew, I forget which chapter in Matthew. Upon the confession of Peter, and upon the ministry of Peter, and thereafter, all those who are like Peter, that's all of us, 
the gates of hell shall not prevail. In other words, when you stand before not just physical gates, but spiritual access points, and you call upon the name of the Lord, no gate of hell shall prevail against you. And I used to imagine, wrongly imagine, this verse as God's people are being walled up behind this fantastic gate and nothing can break in. It's the reverse picture. I don't know how I read it wrongly. Because for the gates of hell to not prevail against the church, it means the church goes out and the gate, until they reach the gates of hell. Not the enemy comes towards you until it reaches the gates of the Christian. It's the other way around. The church goes out. The church is the battering ram against the gates of hell. And when Peter stands before this gate, that gate could not prevail against him. It flung open. And in the same way, my friends, when you step into new frontiers and new territory and you say, God, I'm entering a new workplace. God, I'm moving to a new city. God, I'm reaching out to this new person. And you say, God, in the name of Jesus, Every gate shall bow, every tongue shall confess, and these gates shall not prevail against the work of the church. And then he says, I will give you the gate, gate language. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. You, you want to know what's going to happen from here onwards? This is what's going to happen. We have reached chapter 12. This is chapter 28. At this point, we have been spending time in Jewish land and an early encounter with foreigners, Africans, Ethiopians. Saul is converted, Peter's vision, Cornelius, Gentile, Gentile Pentecost, and from here on, barring just a little bit of whatever, it's Gentile ministry the whole way. From here onwards, gates of hell are going to fall. From here onwards, gates to cities are going to be flung open. From here onwards, believers, not just like Peter, but believers, like all of us as well, are going to be entering into new frontiers and new territory. This is what's going to happen. You're going to see that we are done, by and large, with, with being in Jerusalem. From here, in the weeks to come, not in the current week, but in season two, they're going to start moving to Antioch, Cyprus, Iconium, Lystra, okay? And the more pink, the more blue, the further away they get, right? Um, Derby, Galatia, Philippi. And then by the time they get to Thessalonica and they get to Berea and Athens, they're really all the way in Greece already. They have really traveled quite far. And then they go to Corinth, Ephesus, you know, and, and so on, all the way until Crete, Adriatic Sea, Malta, and Rome, all the way to Italy, right? And of course, from that point, the rest is history. They went out, went along one street, and I want to show you this. As much as gates open, the angel stepped back and left him. You find that strange? I wonder why did the angel have to leave him? Couldn't the angel like be with him, walk with him, go all the way to John Mark's house, you know? I spent a lot of time thinking about why the angel decided it's time. He's good. I've led him to this point. The gates have opened. We are here. Peter, I'm not even going to announce my departure. Just bang, angel leaves, right? And now, up to a certain point, God, via the angel, has to let Peter finish the journey alone. He's not alone. He's not really alone. But he lets him finish the journey alone. And I thought about that. Because 
if you're hunting for the miraculous, and if you're hunting for the supernatural, all the more you need to know this. All the more you need to know this. That there will be tangible, powerful manifestation of God sometimes in your life. And it's going to be really sweet and really powerful and really memorable. And just as easily, God can step back as if into that shadowy place so that you suddenly feel like you're all alone. And you're going to have to walk the rest of the journey as if you were alone. You are not alone. We know He's not alone. We know that God is with Peter all the way. We know that especially because Jesus says in Matthew 28 that surely I am with you all the way to the end of the age. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. He's not alone. But He steps away so that Peter has to finish the journey as if he is alone. Why? I believe that God works in an interplay of coming in in power and presence to shape things. And then He steps out so that we take authority and we take responsibility and we take drive and we take ownership and we see out the journey. And when we need Him, we call Him. He's always and ever present. What you're going to see in the, in the chapters ahead is that doors will open. They will enter new ground. People will believe. And then other people will oppose. There will always be people who believe and there will always be people who oppose. And the rest of Acts will be a cycling of this. And then great danger will threaten them. Great danger. In the midst of this great danger, some will survive, like Peter. And in the midst of this great danger, some others will die, like James. Regardless, after the dying or the surviving, new doors will open. And new doors have been opening all the way through, from the early church to the western church, the schism and the eastern church. It will go on until the, the, the darkest times of the Middle Ages. And doors kept opening until the Reformation, with Calvin and Luther and Doss just kept opening all the way until the Enlightenment period in the West and in the East. Whoa, we really lack scholarship on that, Rodney. Yeah, because we don't really know how to tell what story is happening in the East during this time, right? But Doss just kept opening and they opened all the way until in, uh, until in the 1800s. We have, in the 1500s, Dutch started coming through Malaccan Doss spiritual doors, right? And, and English, Australians started showing up on Bonian shores. And then sometimes in the mid-90s, doors opened in, in Kuala Lumpur for a Borneo church to show up in KL. And then sometime two, three years ago, the door opened in Sungai Buloh for this bunch of us to show up here. Doors just kept opening. Amen? And doors will keep on opening for you. And along the way, there will be great danger. And along the way, some will survive and some will not. But doors will keep on opening. There was open war between two kings. There will be open doors for the gospel to keep going out. And then, on a rest on this point, there is Rhoda, open the door. <laughs> I, I, I love the early church. I tell you why I love the early church. They're so goofy sometimes. 
They're so good. We, we, we sometimes think that, you know something, if you take church too seriously, if you take believing God too seriously, and you're like, oh, we must always get it right. Everything must be timed perfectly. Five, three, two, one, on, bang, you know. Everything must be, key change, key change, key change, bang, you know. And everything must be like so precise because if, God forbid, you know, we show one imperfect hair goes out of place, you know, and then like we lose our witness to the whole world, right? And these guys are just the goofiest bunch of imperfect people, right? Now, let me show you, right? Rhoda, in her joy, right, we know that story, but I tell you, it's not just Rhoda, it's the rest of the believers in that room. And I can tell you, James was not there, neither James was there, right? James, brother of Jesus, was not there. That's why Peter had to say, tell James, right? And then James, brother of John, was dead, right? Um, but who else may have been there? Barnabas, likely was there at the time, okay? The other leaders who were later gained prominence, John Mark was there, right? And all the women likely were there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, may herself have been there. She was still alive at this point, possibly, right? In fact, um, it's even possible, considering that all these things happened simultaneously, that at this time, Barnabas and Saul had been laying over in Jerusalem. They may even have been in that room at that time. We don't know. We just know that in the collection of believers praying for Peter on the night before his execution, they are believing enough to gather. They are believing enough to pray. And yet, when Rhoda comes going like, they're like, nonsense lah, Peter can be rescued. And I've heard people take a knock at the believers here for not having enough faith. I'm not down with that. Yeah, I'm not so down with that. I, I know, I know, I get it, right? You're, they're praying for Peter's release. I get it. They are praying for Peter's release. And then Peter is released and they don't actually believe it. They have to come up with multiple explanations of why it's not Peter, right? First, they say, you're crazy, Rhoda. <laughs> Go back and do Rhoda things, right? And then they say, no, it must be his spirit, right? Or is it he must have died already and that's his... They, they, they can't believe it. And have you ever been there? You pray for something and you just don't know if you can really believe. Your mouth has shot a prayer but your heart has not caught up. You're saying it because it's the Christian thing to do. You're praying. But actually, you don't even know if you really believe. Or maybe, there's a part of you that believes. And that part, it believes enough to open a mouth. Open door, open mouth. You just can pray, right? But actually, there's another big part of you that is full of doubt. Another big part of you that's full of... It's, Impossible, uh, guys. It's impossible. He's he's cheated prison once already. Takkan dua kali, right? And some of this time got like four squadrons of guards all around him. It's not possible. Should you feel guilty for having these doubts? I love this story. You know why I love this story so much? God does not chide them for having his sometimes preachers who, who, who chide them for not having enough faith. God does not chide them. Because in spite of them having imperfect faith, God still rescued Peter. God still heard their prayers. It's not too dissimilar from God hearing Cornelius' prayers. 
I'm sure Cornelius' faith is not perfect. He doesn't know all the details about where his faith ultimately rests on. Still, God heard a non-Christian's prayer. In the same way, these guys don't have enough faith to believe that Peter will actually be saved. And yet, they're praying. And it was good enough for God. Our God is not a God who says that your faith must be like so magnificently a lot, then I'll hear your prayer. That's not our God. And if you have a church background where, now I'm going to be, I'm going to be very clear and yet be very sensitive. If you have heard this before, that you didn't get your miracle because you didn't have enough faith, I want you to remember this bunch of this bunch of believers who were very goofy and very didn't have it together. They really didn't have it together, right? They didn't have their act together. And they didn't have blazing, fiery faith. If anyone ever tells you from the pulpit or elsewhere that this thing didn't break through for you, maybe you didn't have enough faith. I want you to remember, I want you to remember Jesus saying, your faith needs just to be like mustard seed. Just like a mustard seed. It starts small with potential to grow. That's all he needs. That's all he needs is for your faith to start somewhere and he can take it. And he answers prayers. He answers prayers whether your faith is blazing. But I can tell you this, he will honour and answer you if you are prepared to start with whatever faith you have. And all the times when he, he corrected his disciples saying, oh, you of little faith, and sometimes we hold these two in tension and we are scared, right? It's really because they have seen, he knows they have seen enough to have more faith at that time, okay? But if you find yourself with whatever little faith that you have, please do not undermine that faith. Please do not let anyone tell you your faith is too little. If you have any faith, you can give it legs and walk. Amen? I want you to know that God does not need you to be perfect. He does not need you to be a rock star Christian before He can hear your prayers, before He will answer you. Amen? See, they didn't have their act together. They didn't have crazy, blazing, fiery faith. But they were prepared to pray earnestly. I want you to remember that Peter was asleep while they were praying. Meaning this did not happen in the daytime. This did not happen in the early part of the evening. This was a watch night prayer tower. This was a vigil, an overnight vigil. They were praying through the night for Peter. Why? Because after the whole thing, it says that when morning came, there was no small uh, uh, chaos happening in the prison, right? So actually, they had to wait until morning came. They prayed through the night. They had enough. Now, they didn't have enough faith to believe that Peter really would be rescued, but they had enough faith to show up. And that's all I'm asking for from you, church. Enough faith to show up. And when you have enough faith to show up, God can work. God has worked before. That's not to say that we kept our faith right there. God wants to grow your faith. Mustard seed, small, can grow until it's one of the largest trees in the field. Let it start somewhere. There was open wall. There'll be open doors. And then, open your door for fervent prayer. That's why 32 are in Peace Haven this weekend. 
because they are opening the doors for fervent prayer. Do all 32 absolutely believe in every single outcome of every single thing they are praying? Maybe not. Maybe not, but they are there. And the doors have opened there. And today we're gathered here. The doors are opening here. Open wall, open doors, and now open your door. There will be two more vanishing acts before I finish. I want to show you this. Peter, after this, disappears. And he hands the torch. He hands the torch of leadership over to James, brother of Jesus. And later you will see, from story-wise, he hands the torch essentially to Paul. It's interesting, huh? Remember? Okay, I'll show you this first. Peter's story essentially ends here. This is chapter 12. After this, it's no more Peter's story already. He shows up for a one-liner in chapter 15 in this beige square here at the Council of Jerusalem. He says one line, there's a hush, everybody believes, and then he's out of the story completely. But i tell you something. Remember, dress yourself, put on your sandals, wrap your cloak, why so much detail? Why is it so important that Peter grabs all his apparel and wears them and, takes and, and, and leaves, right? After this, remember, when he met, go tell James, and then he went away somewhere, that vague somewhere. Peter has to go into hiding. Because this is Herod. There will be a bounty on his head. He is an escaped prisoner. He will be hunted. He will be hunted by the Roman soldiers. Peter is going to be homeless, running from place to place, sleeping out in the cold of night, sleeping or hiding in any crack in the wall when he can, just to survive until Herod dies. And that's why it's important, I showed you that slide just now, that actually many months pass before Herod actually dies. And so he needs his cloak. He's going to need his sandals. He's going to need everything. And so God does not put all this detail in here just for fun. He puts it in there to show you, angel knows Peter's going to be on the run after this. And so dress yourself fully, get your cloak on you because there'll be many cold nights out on the streets. Peter disappears. And not long after this, Herod also disappears. The power of Herod, as you saw from his whole family tree, so oppressive over the Christian church for so long, this power is going to wane. After Agrippa dies, yes, his son comes back, very, very meager influence over Paul's, uh, over Paul's uh, uh, trial. In fact, I would say no influence over Paul's trial. And then after that, you'll never hear of the Herods again. After Agrippa dies, their dynasty loses their grip. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> and I want to remind you of Isaiah 40 as we close. Can I have the worship team on stage? And in a moment, we're going to sing Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Promise Keeper, Light in the Darkness. Light in the Darkness because when you're in prison, it's dark. And earlier we sang when I fight, I fight on my knees I'll sing through the night Who's singing through the night? Peter is singing in faith in the prison through the night The disciples are singing through the night in John Mark's house Oh God, the battle belongs to you, right? And God makes a way God opens the doors to make a way And in the larger scheme of kingdom versus kingdom 
Herod versus Jesus, King of the Jews versus King of the Jews. I want to remind you of Isaiah 40. All flesh is grass, and its beauty or its shiny royal robes for that matter. Its beauty like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of Yahweh blows on it, boom, it's gone. Surely, the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you are in need of God, opening a door for you today, I want you to know that God, God is, ours is the God whose word over you stands forever. I don't want to belabor this, but I do want to bring you to a place where you can hold, hold your need before a God who loves you. And your wrestling in your faith, a part of you says, God, I believe. Another part of you says, God, help my unbelief. You are a strange mix of faith and fear. And I know pastors always tell you, don't have, have fear, have faith, you know, and it's true. But I want you to know, your fear is not wrong. Your fear needs to be brought under the blood of Jesus Christ. Your fear needs to be brought under the truth and the reality that flowers fade, kings fade, problems fade, troublemakers fade, everything fades. The Word of God endures forever. And God is with you. You walk, I want you to reflect on this one thing. We just sang, promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. And these emblems that you hold in your hands is evidence of a promise of God. He says that this is the new promise, the new covenant made in my blood. As we gather here like this, we are gathering remembrance of Jesus. As you gather here, we remember that the early church was often not very tidy. Things were messy. They met in small, cramped homes, smaller than the premise they are in right now. And they probably gathered around a supper like this to remember Jesus as well. And today, today as you partake of these emblems, we are joining the Lord. We are joining the early church. We are joining centuries, two millennia of churches gathered like this to remember our King, King Jesus. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread. And after He had given thanks, He said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that your body was broken the way no king's body was ever broken. You gave your life so that we can have eternal life. You allowed your body to be broken so that we can be made whole. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, King above all kings, name above all names, Lord of all lords. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. As we partake of this bread, we do this 
in remembrance of you. Let us partake of this bread together. After supper had ended, he took the cup and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for this cup. We thank you for this cup, which is a remembrance of your blood that was shed on the cross, of your sacrifice, your willing sacrifice, a sacrifice like no other king has ever sacrificed. And so, Father, I thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are a promise keeper. And in this, through this cup, you made a new covenant with us, a promise that you will keep until the end of times. Never will you leave us. Never will you forsake us. Surely you, you are with us till the end of the age. We thank you for this. Let us partake of this cup together. Father, we ask that you bless the food that's before us. Bless the food that's before us, Lord God, sanctified as nourishment to our bodies. May you bless every hand that prepared and served the food. We thank you, Lord God, for the very dear members who cooked, who ordered, who went out to pick up, who brought and everything. Lord Jesus, may this lunch be a celebration of your family. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.